This is quantization. Hello and welcome to the third episode of Art and Inclusion from Quantization Podcast. Quantization is a production of Arezu Talibzadeh and Kava Ashurinia. Opera is a climax of the Western classical music tradition, in which artists, musicians, and singers perform a dramatic piece. We usually describe and remember operas with extensive and fine-tuned productions, which happen mostly in opera houses. Traditionally, all components of any opera should resemble the perfection of a part of the production. But how can we redefine the opera in the current culturally complex societies? How about accessibility and inclusion? Or how about making, rehearsing and watching an opera in the time of the pandemic? In this episode, we have Ambal Escus conversing with Colin Clark, discussing her ideas and progress on creating and rehearsing an opera during the lockdown. Her opera is called we ask these questions of everybody and is streaming online on January 29, 2021. Her project is unique in many ways and leaves us with various questions about defining and performing this art form. This is episode 15, Art and Inclusion, Volume 3, Opera in the Time of the Pandemic. Hello, I'm Bell and Colin, and thanks for accepting our invitation. Can we start with your introduction, please? Sure. Amble, do you want to go first or should uh, I? Sure. Yeah. Um, so my name's Amble Skews. I'm a composer. Uh, I'm disabled in various ways. Um, I work with live instruments and electronics. Um, I do field recordings. Um, I make soundscapes. I make sound walks. I'm currently working on an opera. Um, I'm doing a PhD in the UK. Amazing. Um, and, and I'm Colin Clark. I'm the Associate Director of the Inclusive Design Research Center, and I'm a, a video artist and sometimes a composer, musician, um, uh, also working in electronics, uh, home-built software, and trying to create communities around um, open and inclusive creative tools. Great, thank you. You just mentioned the opera. Yeah. Could you expand on that and give us a little background? What is the theme? How has the project started? And how it sounds? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm working with um, a company called Hera, who are based in London, and they're an all-female team. Um, uh, they set up to make more opera by women both living and dead I'm not sure which one I am so I met Toria Banks who's one of the producers at Hera um, through I was doing a, a piece with the power orchestra in the UK and I was interviewing lots of disabled people about their experience of being disabled and I wanted to make a soundscape of those stories and perspectives I suppose because I 
I don't really hear those perspectives very often in mainstream media or, or radio. And I was interested in hearing perspectives that I wasn't sort of used to talking about. And I also noticed that when I talked to other disabled people, it was super interesting because everybody sort of has to develop an individual way of approaching the world and an individual way of dealing with all the both physical and mental and emotional kind of obstacles that come up. So I interviewed around 20 people and just had some fascinating conversations, really, really interesting people, really interesting conversations. And they ranged, you know, we talked about um, society and benefits and money and death and pain and optimism and utopia and community and just everything and Toria was one of the people who volunteered to be interviewed and then a little bit after I'd worked with that I'd I'd made a song for Steph West and Victoria Uruwari who are both disabled singers to sing as part of this power orchestra piece and I just sort of sent it out to some of the people who'd contributed to the interviews to say like you know, this is what we've made and I hope you like it. And Toria came back and said, actually, um, I'm an opera producer and um, there's some interesting kind of opportunities. Um, I can't remember what it was called. It was at the Opera House in London and they were looking for work by women to sort of workshop and develop. And she said, would you be interested in partnering with me and seeing like if we could get some R&D time to work on this show and I was like yeah <laughs> of course it turned out we didn't get that um but we did get an R&D session with Mahogany Opera who are also based in London and they're really awesome they do like um community opera and young people's opera and um we spent some time with uh Frederick Wake Walker from Mahogany um and We've ended up using the recordings that I made um, for the Power Orchestra piece, the interviews, plus some new interviews that I did specifically for this show. Um, alongside, uh, it's a verbatim recording of a PIP interview, which is, is quite a UK-specific thing. Um, it's called the Personal Independence Payment, and it's, a, it's sort of relatively new. It took over from the Div Disability Living Allowance. And basically what it did was it reduced the bracket within which you are entitled to support from the British government. Um, and people who used to get disability living allowance money were told that they had to reapply for this new thing called PIP and that they would have to have an interview face to face with a nurse. And that nurse would assess whether they were entitled to this new benefit, which had much tighter restrictions than the older one. And there had There'd been a lot of really disturbing media around the PIP interviews. There were people saying that the transcript of the interview didn't really reflect what they'd said or that they'd made a case for something and then the opposite had turned up in the paperwork and that they'd sent notes in from their doctor and then those doctors' notes hadn't been taken into cons consideration by the person making the assessment. So there's all these question marks about it um, and we got a transcript um, was donated to the show along with the original recording of the interview and what's really interesting about it is that in order to record your PIP interview you have to get permission from 
the DWP, which is the Department for Work and Pensions in in the UK, and um, you have to you have to record it on cassette tape. You have to make two cassette tapes, so you have to take two cassette recorders with you, and they have to be battery powered because you're not allowed to plug anything in that hasn't been um, pat tested, which is like an electronic appliance test. So you can't just take something and plug it in in case it's faulty and blows the building up. So they have to be battery powered cassette recorders and you have to have two and at the end of the interview you have to give one to the person that did the interview and you keep the other one and their argument for this is that you can't edit a tape recording a tape recording is a tape recording and I would you know as as somebody who works with audio I would say well if we did a digital recording and you had a copy you'd be able to prove that I'd edited it because you'd have the original I suppose the point is I could argue that they'd cut things in maybe I don't know But alongside that, you have to have permission from them to do that. And so this person had had permission. They turned up with the tape recorders. The first time they'd gone along, they'd been told they had the wrong tape recorders and got sent away. And they had to make another appointment and come back with different tape recorders. (laughs) The second time it was all recorded and then the person got it transcribed. When the paperwork came back, it was absolutely full of discrepancies and they then went through the transcription and said, oh, the the note taker said this, but actually, if you look in the transcription, this is what I said. And then the DWP came back and said, oh, we can't find any evidence that you had permission to record this, so therefore that won't be valid in court. And we suggest that the court disregards the recording and the transcription, which is basically to say, if you can't prove that we gave you permission, then we can lie about it and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, And luckily, this person had actually made a voice recording when they phoned the DWP and asked for permission, and they had a voice recording, and they were able to play it to the court and had the DWP on tape saying, yes, you have permission to record it, which meant the transcript could go through. And surprise, surprise, the DWP reversed their position, and it didn't end up going to court. But, like, it's this kind of really surreal kind of Kafka-esque world that actually if you did have um, any kind of learning disability or if you had any kind of cognitive issues or communication issues that whole process is set up to to make you completely vulnerable. Um, I think the other thing that's really interesting about the interview is that it it's so personal and it's so uncomfortable to have to sit in a room and tell somebody everything about your life and they're asking you really weird questions like when did you last leave the house can you chop a vegetable and it's sort of it's all those things that as a disabled person you try not to think about what you can't do you try not to think about how awful everything is you try not to think about how lonely you are you try not to think how vulnerable you are and then you've got this kind of really intense questioning where that's all they want to know (laughs) you know it's it's kind of deeply disturbing in a really uncomfortable way and it's a really interesting kind of interaction between the two people because it really brings up the question of like well what what do we mean by a human being what does it mean to be a human being and which of these people is being more human at this point in time and what are we doing to each other by trying to judge each other only by how awful our lives are and should that even matter when we're talking about whether somebody should be able to afford to eat or not you know it's like this all these really kind of uncomfortable questions it's like the the power to decide 
what someone needs is always held in the institution in this model, right? So it's a, it's a deficit model where, it, where, where you're being interviewed and being asked, what can't you do? Yeah. And then yeah. it's only the bureaucrats <laughs> who get to decide what you need so that there are things you, you can do. And, and the, the power seems really, really out of calibration there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it sort of went hand in hand, this change went hand in hand with this kind of ramping up of media attention around disabled people as fakes and frauds, you know, and like TV shows about people faking it in order to get money and, you know, hidden camera shows of somebody who's so-called got a bad back, like going swimming and owning a house in Spain. And, you know, this kind of this ramping up of suspicion around disabled people. Like, you can't actually believe what they said, you, you know. And so you have a situation where somebody says they can walk 10 metres, but the nurse writes down 15. And then later on, they, the nurse says, oh, oh, um, you said you could walk 15 metres. And then you're in a position where you're thinking, well, did, did I say 15 or did I say 10? I thought I said 10, but she's written down 15. And then you've got this position where you're you have to challenge her and say, no, oh, actually, I didn't I didn't say that. So we um, Toria took this transcript and worked really carefully with it um, and edited it down into a script. Can you hear that in the background? Yeah, but it's okay. Sorry, that's my cat. She's decided that she's going to go completely mental. And Good cat. Scamper around the house. <laughs> she's asleep for like 23 hours a day and this is the one hour when she's decided she's going to jump around my bedroom and attack things. So the opera is kind of like this really, really stark contrast between the way that disabled people talk about being a disabled person and the, the philosophy and the utopia and the the way we communicate with each other and the way we see the world and the opportunities and um, the, the shared passions and the shared thoughts. And then on the other hand, you have the way that the PIP assessment reviews disability is just tick this box can you chop vegetables yes or no and it's this kind of constriction and expansion of of, of how we consider ourselves um which is contrasted throughout the opera um and it i mean i think i said before it's all verbatim so the interview between the disabled person and the the assessor is taken from a live from a real transcript that we have audio for that was donated to the show and all the stuff that comes in the choruses is real recordings from interviews that I've done. And again, I just really like that model because it's not just me that's a composer that gets to decide what people hear. It's not, I'm not, I mean, to a certain extent I'm filtering because obviously we've chosen things from the interviews and from, from the, from the transcript, but it's also kind of allowing a, a slightly broader voice that isn't filtered and isn't kind of, just one person's perspective, I guess. So so what does the opera sound like? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure yet. I can tell you what it's meant to sound like. <laughs> but I haven't finished it's, it's it. It's still in still in rehearsal. At yeah, this point. yeah. Well it's in we're in the recording stage, so um the choruses are kind of soundscapes of interviews and some of them are really kind of grainy quality and some of them are better quality. Some of them are really digitally compressed. So it's obvious that we did them on Zoom or Skype. And I kind of like that because that's how a lot of us communicate. And, and I'm not sort of trying to make that sound uh, like professional quality recordings from a studio because it just isn't how we live. 
Um, and then, and that, uh, we've got a clarinetist um, called Sonia Aluri, who uh, is disabled, and Steph West is going to be playing harp as well. So the chorus parts are mainly soundscape with some live instruments um, improvising around that. And it was important to us that it was improvised as well, because again, it's about decentralising the power that I have as a as a composer and partly I think the thing for me about access is that you know disabilities can be so variable one of the things that's really difficult about being a disabled performer is being able to guarantee that you can do anything on a given day so it's like well one day I might be able to play the Mozart clarinet concerto another day I might just be able to honk and actually I want that to be okay I, I want the performers to feel like they can give me what they're capable of giving me on any given day and that's absolutely fine that the piece flexes to accommodate changes in the performance like we're a network of nodes and the nodes are all responding to each other and accommodating each other it's not about saying right the show's going up you have to be at peak performance now because for a disabled person that's kind of an unrealistic thing to try and achieve so I wanted to import a kind of model which allowed the performers to be real I guess and to give me what they were what they could and what they wanted to give me um and not what I was trying to impose upon them um the sung parts are kind of quite intimate less electronic there's uh Steph West is a folk singer and she plays the role of Hannah who is the uh disabled woman and Victoria Oruwari is a classically trained singer. So she has a more kind of trained voice and a more kind of typically operatic background, I guess. And she's playing the role of the assessor. And we really wanted to kind of question what voices were heard and what's a valid voice to put in an opera. And so those two are singing with a very kind of um, minimal, sparse harp and electronics background. Let's listen to Amber's work and then we will continue. For me, it's just kind of like, it's not a bad thing um, to be disabled. It's because the rest of society sees us as a problem. Your right to exist. What does it mean to be a human being? Yeah, it's 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 difficult. It's difficult. It's it's really really difficult. And he's looking at me, thinking you're fucking cripple. And then this is the value of our existence. Because I don't want to be like you. I don't want to see you. I don't want to be like you. I also feel it's because, again, disabled people are not seen as citizens, equal citizens to everyone. We don't care. We don't care. We don't care. We don't care. You know, and then people start to think, oh, bloody disabled people, or oh, if only we had less of them. Better dead than disabled. You fucking shit. Fucking shit. What's the meaning to be a human being? 
because like, my life, life is never going to be ordinary. There are different, there are different ways, of, ways of being, being and existing. existing. Well, well, yeah, yeah like, like nowhere is like a personal political, personal or political, or political, political personal more than like, like how your body functions. It's a recognition that we both want the space to just, to just be, be who we are. are. No, I think. I think I like my life as it is right now, and I couldn't imagine it any differently. And I also don't want to be cured. I want to be who I want to be who I am now. Gives me a kind of freedom from society's expectations. And it's a positive thing, not a negative thing. Or it's a positive thing as well as a negative thing, maybe. I do not want to fit into the way that society has organised itself at the moment. It's about building a new way of, of living. It's because we've discovered that losing control is not the end of the world. world. It's, it's just baffling and difficult. And these are difficult, difficult things, things. They, they just, just ignore them. Of course I can play them. I'm a human fucking being. Anything. Uh, yeah. Is that a thing of what money will create ways to not become disabled? Then create a world where becoming disabled wasn't a bad thing. So therefore, I must be a problem. I must want to be as great as you. Let's try to fix the individual and not fix society. I think they're measuring people financially. We still haven't worked out. Why are we so productive? The politics of. You know. You know. You know. You know. You know. You know. Are you just saying, yeah, fuck now, you've got no clue of the damage that you're doing to sell people? It's, 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 it's fucked. No matter how, no matter how well you do, and it's 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 difficult it's difficult for other people to listen to it. Like, and, and it's, it's, it's 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 fucked. This question of. Opera is is an interesting one for me. Do you, do you think so? So why why an opera? Do you think an opera can can be in some way redeemed through making a work that's so different <laughs> like this? I mean, I think of opera in one sense as being the pinnacle of a certain kind of Western classical elitism. Mm. That this, you know, simultaneously it's a it's a, a musical tradition that is hyper-athletic, um, as you say, emphasizes, you know, being ready, doing it exactly perfectly, a certain virtuosity. On the other side of it, it regularly pilfers from other musical cultures while denying that they're as serious or as legitimate as opera itself. So, <laughs> so you're in a pretty fraught political realm with opera, and it seems to me you've got a You've got a critique and something else there. Yeah, I mean, 
I, I had this chat with Toria and I was like, is it an opera though? Like, should we be using that word? And Toria was really kind of like, yeah, actually, we can we can use that word to mean anything we want it to use. Like, we can decolonize the term opera. We can take it and apply it to what we do. And there is a questioning in there of hierarchy and validity and assumptions of of what is a valid piece of work and what is uh what is I don't know niche and I think within new opera there are some kind of really interesting things happening and people trying with different techniques and using electronics and stuff like that and I think you know within opera it sort of is supposed to be the pinnacle of musical achievement uh everything that's kind of sought after by western classical tradition but in doing that we go through a, a series of eliminative processes. So when we're training people, it's a case of can you meet the grade, yes or no? And if the answer is no, then you're out. And and and, and through doing that, then we eliminate people um, so that we get this particular voice, this particular ideal, this particular way of singing, this particular way of thinking, this particular way of think of acting. And I guess what we what I would like to question is who decides what that definition of quality is and and ultimately you know we've we've had centuries of that sort of decision being made by white men basically and rich white men at that um and it is a definition of quality it is a definition of um beauty but i question whether it's it's the only one and so i think I think for our opera, there'll be a number of audiences. And I think one of the audiences will look at it and go, this is an opera. And if it's trying to be opera, it's not very good opera because we're not going to meet those definitions of quality. But by our very existence, the fact that we are disabled means we're very unlikely to have ever succeeded to jump through all the hoops needed to get to the level that they want us to get to. And so that idea of higher hierarchy and, and kind of musical superiority is based on having sufficient resources and sufficient energy and sufficient access to get there. And, you know, the fact that I can't go to music college and sing for 10 hours a day means I'm never gonna get there but that does that mean that I can't write an opera does that mean that what I have to say isn't a valid thing to say so I think in reducing the amount of people who who get through that filtration system we also reduce the kind of things which are said and the perspectives that we hear and I think that's I'm kind of interested in that and you know if we look at the process of learning classical music is you know it's like an EQ filter it's like Ultimately, every time you have to go through a new process, whether that's um, getting a, a, a good teacher, getting a good instrument, being able to afford the lessons, being able to go to summer camps, being able to get into music college, knowing which college to go to, being able to afford to live in the city where the music college is. Every time you have to go through one of those things, you start to filter out people from different backgrounds, people who don't have the financial resources or the cultural background or um, are, you know, disabled or don't have the energy to do it. Or maybe, you know, people who are single parents or working class and never knew that singing opera was a thing until it was too late, you know. And so we end up with this very kind of just a kind of mid-range honk of of perspectives coming out because we've actually filtered out all the other perspectives and thoughts. 
in the very model that we've used in order to try and find quality. And I sort of feel like if we're looking for quality, there's a couple of things we need to do. And one is that we really need to think about what we mean by quality and who defined that and whether it's a valuable qual- a valuable definition that we still want to live by. And secondly, does the model that we're employing in order to find that quality actually enable us to find quality or does it just enable a certain kind of person to get to the top? And and for me, it's about shaking those models up a little bit. And that's that's I think that's why I'm interested in what I'm doing with Toria in Heroes, because we're trying not to be prescriptive we're trying not to be the director the composer saying here's the score go sing it and I want it perfect and you'll do it again until I get it perfect and and it's sort of saying actually take this and and be you with it and bring it back to me you sing the lines you want to sing you play the lines you want to play you respond to the bits of the the script that work for you and let me have what it gives to you and in that way it sort of feels it feels more like a model that might work for disabled people where we can say, you know, an eight hour day in a building is not necessarily something you can do. What can you give me? Like, let's create a working model that works for you so that you can give me your best because people have things to give, but they can't, they can't get through the models and the systems that we've created so I think that's one of the things we're trying to do with this opera is sort of unpick the way things are done and do them in a way that allows our musicians and our writers and our composers to give their best without destroying them. And it's kind of like it's an interesting balance because we're all disabled. We've we've all tried to come at it without expectations of what a rehearsal means, what a recording means, what a script means, what a score means, what um what an improvisation means you know it's like all of that is up for debate because we all have different needs and we all have different ways of working and we all have you know I I think I've used this metaphor before and in a piece of writing but it is I'm really into gardening and like there's no point putting a cactus in a pond and there's no point taking a pond plant and putting it in a desert like if you if you want something to flower, you have to know what soil to put it in. You have to know how much water to give it. You need to know how much light to give it. You need to know how hot it wants to be. And I kind of feel like that's the way we need to think about disabled people and 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 broadening our idea of, of how we work, especially in the arts. If you want people to flourish and give you something unique and valuable and creative and vulnerable and beautiful, there's no point kind of putting them in a box and and saying right here's a grow light do your thing it's like I, I don't think that's where beauty comes from necessarily like we think about the arts as an industrial machine I think because we've been so industrialized over the last sort of 150 years we think well here's a model you slam people into it you go through that process and at the end the good ones come out and I don't necessarily think that's true I think the people that do come out of that process are very good and absolutely not critiquing their talent or their commitment or their hard work, not at all. But there's also a lot of people who could have given us interesting stories who get spat out of the machine because it just didn't work for them. Um, and I think that's probably like the next stage of of arts training, of arts thinking, of philosophy, philosophy thinking, of academic thinking that that we need to sort of start opening up. Mm-hmm.
do, do you see your role as a composer in this in this different model as as like a gardener i mean to use your I I don't know really I mean in the sense that you know I chose the seeds I chose the plants I you know I worked with Toria to find a place that we're going to put it on so you know in the sense that this isn't a this isn't um, a wilderness where the plants are just growing where they want to grow like I'm very much kind of in charge of the garden in the way that a human is saying to a tomato well grow in that pot and not in that pot um but I, I don't know. I, I think you'd have to ask my musicians if I'm a gardener, if I'm n- nurturing their their real self or whether I'm just going, I need this song. I don't know. It's it's kind of like nodes. It's like nodes in a network. That's how I see it. And, and it's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever seen like a geodesic dome or something, but it's a bit like that. But before it's all set, where you know because geodesic domes get really rigid but it's before that bit where you haven't quite got all the bits in and if you move one bit the rest of it all shifts and if you like if one node moves to the left the others all sort of have to accommodate it a little bit and I think that's kind of how I like to think of working with disabled people is saying well what shape do we need to be in order for you to work and what shape do we need to be for you to work and how do we create a kind of three-dimensional shape which creates a space for everybody to work without anybody feeling too squished or too squashed or yeah so it keeps moving and you know and it moves every day in every rehearsal you know we get to points where one person needs a break or another person needs something sent over or another person um can't hear something properly so we have to find another way of getting it to them and that happens throughout the rehearsal it's not like a case of going right we've got a captioner let's go um there's constant negotiation between us Amber, I'm I'm curious about what it's what the process has been like. I mean, you're you're making an opera in the middle of a pandemic, mm. um, and I've, I, you, you've mentioned a, f- a few things. You you talked about doing rehearsals on Zoom. Um, what like what's the process been like to actually go from, I, I assume, writing some notes on a page into almost being finished recording an opera? Um, it's it was kind of crazy, really, because we. We got the email saying we got the funding about a week after the lockdown started. In fact, I'd gone to the, I'd gone to stay at my mum's because we were going to be doing a a presentation of the R and D week in London, and then we got the email saying you've got the money to make an opera. Can you tell us how you're going to do it in a pandemic? And we were like, actually, yeah, because I sort of live like I'm in the pandemic all the time in a weird way. It's like the bell curve of normal moved and I'm now right in the middle of it. I'm actually totally in my comfort zone. I do pretty much everything from bed. I do pretty much everything online. I go out once a week to the supermarket or I have stuff delivered if I'm not well enough. I very rarely go into cities. I very rarely go into places where there's lots of people. (laughs) I've had 10 years of practicing this kind of lifestyle and it, it was quite weird because it was like, you know, I was working with you um, when I was in Canada and we were like, oh, you know, we should look at how to get disabled people so that, you know, creating this software so that people can collaborate from home and we could have the world's first online ensemble. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and before we had a chance to kind of get anywhere with it, it was like, bam, global pandemic, everyone's online and there's billions of global ensembles all rehearsing online. And, and we're kind of like, oh, that our idea. Oh, um, <laughs> so in a way it was like we'd built these very careful little universes which which were all kind of unique and delicate and required negotiation and then suddenly the whole world moved and everybody was doing it and and in a way that's really positive because it's like all the time we've been asking for more online access because we couldn't get to things um and then suddenly everything was online and it was like oh awesome um but then on the other hand it's kind of like yeah, and as soon as this is over, you're all going to forget about it again. <laughs> but yeah, so that was quite weird. But what was really nice about it was we'd sort of planned that we would do most of it from home anyway. We hadn't really planned that we were going to have like weeks in a rehearsal room, as you would with an opera. We always knew that I was probably not going to be present and that we'd have to do a lot of it by network. And also because of how I live and because a lot of people that I'd interviewed for the show are very home-based, I wanted them to be able to interact with it and to be a part of the show. And, you know, the idea that we would put it on in a theatre and only people who could make it to the theatre at a given time and sit through two hours of it could see it seemed completely wrong for the very people that we're talking about. You know, it's kind of like... I don't want my show about disability to not be accessible to the people who've helped me make it. That's kind of crazy. So <laughs> so we'd already thought we'd love it to be online. We'd, we'd like some kind of interaction. I'm going to be doing quite a lot of it remotely and sending stuff to people. Um, and so we sort of wrote back and said, the main difference was that we were going to do it live and a lot of it was going to be live streamed and there was going to be like bits of video and bits of interactivity which fitted into that. And we just said, well, actually, let's crank down the live angle and crank up the the digital angle. But apart from that, we sort of didn't have to change very much. Apart from obviously on our mind's eye, we were seeing it as a theatre show and now we, we're seeing it as a website. So that was quite a big sort of, oh, what? oh, so we don't need costumes, we're not going to have a set, I'm not going to see her sing this under a beautiful light, like, these things aren't going to happen, so what are we going to do? Um, so we brought on board um, a woman that does creative captioning, and so basically there's not going to be any visual element because we want... A lot of the interview is about your home, like, do you have stairs? Do you have a toilet upstairs? Do you have a toilet downstairs? Where's your shower? How often can you have a bath? Can you lift a saucepan or a pot, as she says in the script? And we wanted people to think about themselves in their homes. And we felt that if people were watching some kind of video, they might actually not be as centred in their bodies and in their homes as if they were purely audio. So we've got um, a creative captioner who is going to be captioning all the the verbal audio and some of the sounds so that people who um have hearing impairments can also enjoy the context of the show but without people feeling like they have to sit and stare at a screen while the show's happening so that was like the major change really was thinking you know we don't film people singing an opera in their living rooms like we just didn't feel like that was 
what we wanted our audience to experience and we really wanted to put the audience in their bodies in their homes and and so again it sort of really worked for us in a weird way because that sort of makes more sense than people coming to a venue and sitting in the dark and watching it in a chair um they can sit in their bed and listen to it and then in terms of making it there's been lots of different processes which have really stretched me as a composer um, some of it is chopping up audio and making soundscapes, which I love doing and I've done quite a lot. Um, so that's been loads of fun and I've been in my comfort zone and that's just lovely. Other bits like once Toria had decided on the script, I then had to go through and chop those bits of audio out of the original trans, um, the original recording of the interview. And then I had to sit down and notate the conversation um, with a keyboard so just listening to a phrase on loop and playing it back and obviously the more you do that the quicker you get at it you know your fingers just go um but it also it drives you a bit a bit insane because then every conversation you hear you hear as a pitch and you can see the stove in front of you with everyone you're talking to that also then becomes really interesting when you talk to people with different accents because you can see how different cultures and different accents articulate pitch and rhythm differently as they speak. Um, it also had quite a kind of traumatic effect on me because I was listening to this awful, awful thing on loop for months and it was also a really bad quality recording because it was a cassette tape. <laughs> Um, and one of the things that I find really difficult with my disability is focusing on complex sound, which is ironic because I'm a composer. Maybe that's why I'm a composer. I like to organise the sound. But it was really tiring trying to pick up the rhythms and the pitches of what they were saying and hearing all that tape hiss and all that room noise and it just kind of bores into your brain. And then the content of it as well, which is kind of enraging and upsetting and traumatising all at the same time. So that process of notating it was difficult. There was also questions about, well, how much do I know, like, how much do I quantize this in terms of pitch and rhythm? Are we using 12 semitones and are we using you know a standard kind of uh notation and when the singers sing it how much do I want to have tidied it up um and so it wasn't really a case of notating it once and saying yep yeah, that's that's done it was like the first time I did it I notated it as much as I could exactly how it was said and then I was like I can't give that to singers that's mental and so I tidied it up a little bit and then and then it was like, actually, I can't score it like that because A, it will take a really long time because it will change key signature in every bar. And then B, it will be virtually impossible to read or rehearse because it changes tempo and key signature in every bar. So there's kind of these compromises. You sort of have to do layers and layers and layers of it to the point where you're like, I don't want to make it too kind of 4-4 four, four F major. But at the same time, like, how far can I push this in terms of difficulty? And it's not that our singers can't 
do difficult. They really, really do do difficult and they're doing it very, very well. But it's about how much I want to put people through, I think. And so there've been those sorts of things. And, and I've learned a lot as I've gone along. And I think if I did it again now, I would do it a lot quicker. But I didn't know those things when I did it. So I had to do it four times. So so that's kind of been the process of writing. It's been really interesting working with Toria as well because I I work a lot with text, but it tends to be pre-written text or text that I've written or interviews. Um, and this is the first time I've written, I've worked with a writer and I tend not to collaborate because, because of my disability and because working with people that don't have energy impairments is just really really hard because I work really differently from people who don't have energy impairments I tend to just work alone because it means I can protect my my energy I can make my own decisions I can decide how things go I can make it once and just do it once and not have to make it 10 times whereas people who don't have energy impairments are like oh can we just do redo this and I'm like no I'm going to die um but it's been really interesting working with Toria because she is also disabled in a very similar way to me and so it's the first time that I've collaborated in that way I think and it's also the first time I've collaborated with another disabled writer you know one of the things that's really interesting is deadlines because as a disabled person I tend to work forwards in front in terms of deadlines I'm like I'll do what I can when I can and that's all I can promise whereas with this it's like we have a show going out (laughs) and it's gonna go out on this day and so there's this constant tension between what our bodies can do what our minds can do and how much has to be done by a certain date and negotiating that between a team of disabled people is really quite complicated because you're trying to work in a non-disabled way but also give people the freedom to be disabled and to listen to their bodies on a daily basis and say I don't think I can do this today and for that to be okay but then internally as a producer you're going oh my god the schedule So it's kind of like, how do you negotiate? It's been really interesting kind of dealing with all of those um, those kind of conceptual questions around how do you make work which is actually disabled friendly? What is your process that means you don't end up slamming your disabled people through a ringer at some point, which is what we absolutely don't want to do? It does seem like flexibility, especially when it comes to time. You you talked earlier about how industrialization has narrowed our ways of thinking. And of course, as a musician, you probably think a lot about time. And it seems like time is the one thing that's like contracted and hardened because of this industrial approach. Like you got to make your deadlines. You got to work nine to five. And so... <laughs> Being able to have those conversations about, well, when do you work best? What happens if, you know, it's a bad day and you can't work today? How, how do we work around those things? Exactly. And I mean, this is one of the reasons I work by myself, because I'm kind of like, well, I know that I can make good stuff. I think now I think I've done enough to be like, yeah, I think I think I can do good stuff, but I I definitely can't do it if you need me to 
be somewhere at nine o'clock and do it until five o'clock and then go home and do it all again the next day. It's like, you know, that correlation between making a good thing and making it in a framework that is expected are two completely different things. And, and I'm sort of used to that, that if you wake up at three in the morning and you've got some energy, you just make some of the thing and then you might sleep all day, but that's fine. Um, Obviously, then when you're working with another person or five or six or seven people, that becomes a really kind of interesting thing to negotiate. Um, but yeah, I think it's one of the interesting things that I think we, we're learning as a, as a society through the pandemic is that, oh, actually, you, you can do really good work if you're in your pyjamas under a duvet um, stroking a cat. It doesn't mean the quality of your work goes down. So these ideas that in order to be a professional you should be wearing a suit and you should be in at quarter past eight in the morning and you should only take half an hour for lunch and you should blah 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 blah. it's like that's got nothing to do with the quality of work that's got nothing to do with output at all it might be important in some circles where that's what your customer expects but again we're talking about expectations as opposed to reality um i could say something really weird about diamonds do it. You know, it's like the way we we the way we present diamonds, right? You know, and it's like we have these flashy adverts and these beautiful women and they've got these diamond rings and everything's shiny and sparkling and perfect. That's not where diamonds come from. Like if people actually saw how diamond mines work and the people who work in the diamond mines and the conditions that they're working in, it's like, oh, in order to get that beautiful product, all of this is happening behind the scenes it's not quite the right metaphor because that's talking about exploitation is the opposite of exploitation it's about saying to people if you work in the way that is most comfortable for you I believe you will give me the best product that you can give um, and a product that doesn't destroy you you know we talk a lot about you know well-being in the workplace but what we don't talk about is why people are are becoming ill just by going to work every day and why it is the individual's responsibility to then take time out of their leisure time to try and fix the problem that the work environment has caused them like rather than talking of saying to people oh you better do more yoga so that you can cope with your work life why don't we look at the work environment and say this is really toxic actually and if people have to spend the rest of their free time doing yoga and having counseling in order to cope with it maybe it's not actually a very good working environment and if we could allow people to define their own working environment a little more, maybe we would save money in terms of mental health care and we would also get better work production from people. That's kind of that's kind of the perspective that I've got through being a disabled person is that actually I can make really good work, but I'm not going to turn up in a suit and be there five days a week. It's just not going to happen. But it doesn't mean that I don't have something hopefully interesting to say and it doesn't mean that I can't contribute to academic conferences and and you know take part in a conversation and contribute philosophical ideas and and contribute to the way we think about the world and the and the music that is made and the way we think about music and I'm hoping that's like a shift that we can start to understand is that you don't need all the process in order to get the product maybe you need different processes and with different processes different technology supports and tools and ways of 
working and negotiating with each other as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's not something I'm particularly good at. I'm not hugely good at people, um, to be honest. I just walk in, I'm like, this is what I need to do. I'm going to get on with it. <laughs> um, some people are really skilled with human beings and I have full awe of those people. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. When we're working in a team of people where we're all trying to respond to each other's needs, how do we actually talk about that and also how do how do we let go of a lot of the ingrained stuff because one of the things that's come up in these rehearsals is that we've all been like oh god I'm really sorry oh I forgot something oh I'm really sorry I messed up oh sorry I'm tired and we're constantly reminding each other no 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 no, don't apologize this is you this is who you are today and that is completely acceptable that is completely fine that you didn't hit record or it's completely fine that this is the first time you've done something like this like I think especially as musicians we are so heavily programmed that you must walk in and 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 have this air of perfection and competence and and I think also because musicians are quite precarious and everything's freelance and there's this kind of fear that if you mess something up you won't get booked again it's sort of like how do we strip ourselves of those ideas to be like you know what? I am going to mess something up doesn't mean we're not going to have a great product by the end of it but yeah I'm probably gonna make I'm gonna mess something up at some point <laughs> like we're human it's fine um and I feel like that's something as a music industry we could probably get better at instead of people are so hypercritical of themselves that I don't think it's massively good for our mental health to be constantly feeling you know the James Brown effect like if it's not perfect you're out of the band it's like that that's not helpful I don't think I find that kind of toxic no kidding (laughs) I've been I've been struggling talking to people during the pandemic about music with a kind of normativity around what music is and should sound like which I, I think relates to your notion of quality that you've been talking a lot about here but Lots of people just say to me, we can't, you can't make music on Zoom. Oh. You can't do music. And and I think, what, what do you mean? How, how can you not make music? They say, well, you can't make, you, you, their rhythms don't match up, right? Mm. Because, you know, with the internet, there's latency in different ways on different people's computers. And the, yeah. the, um, I'm on a podcast, so I'll have to describe what I'm doing, but, you know, I'm <laughs> beating meter? out a sort of pulse here and yeah, and yeah th- those pulses aren't shared anymore and to me I've been I gave a talk a couple of weeks ago trying to argue that that was actually a musical possibility that there was an aesthetic to making music on zoom that that maybe we'd never taken seriously before um and it, it also strikes me that then what how we first met looking at tools for remote collaboration particularly for people with disabilities um there's still something missing around what tools and ways of making music we have available to us. Did, did you face any of these kinds of challenges with, with using Zoom and getting people in sync or out of sync in the ways you wanted them? Okay, so one of the things that I don't really do very much of in my work is beat, meter, rhythm. Like, So for me, I'm kind of like, nah, do it when you like. Because a lot of my work is based around like the breath and things kind of falling when they fall and how people speak, you know, you want to speak really quickly and then, 
oh, there's a pause, maybe? I'm not massively interested in anything with a 4-4 beat. You know, I mean, it's fine, but it's not It's not what I do. I'm not very good at it. And it's working with soundscape. It's more about textures and forms and, and kind of things coming in and out of phase with each other. And so for me, I think when we talked about the dis- disability ensemble over the internet, I wasn't massively worried about that. Apart from we would need to say, like, if anyone wants to do beat, it needs to be just one person. And then everyone else can just wish a rosh around it. Well, the other thing we talked about is like, you know, this... Oh, should we say this on the podcast? I should I should patent this. Um, but, you know, that <laughs> idea of actually... Um, when you send your audio through, there's like one person who's centrally hosting it and their computer clock finds the beat and syncs it and puts it out. Obviously, it doesn't help you as a performer. I think you're right. I think when we say you can't do music over Zoom, we're talking about a specific type of music, which requires a beat and requires us to be in sync. And luckily for me, again, the bell jar moved to somewhere where I was really comfy. <laughs> like I was like, yay, no beat, no problem. But for a lot of people, that is a definition of music. And without that, it becomes incredibly difficult to do what they do. Um, I think it's something we can definitely explore in terms of, you know, texture and timbre and and even getting around it. I mean, with the opera, we don't really have a beat. And we've got, I think there's one song where the singers are singing in harmony with each other. But apart from that, it's all question and response because it's an interview. And so it's one singer, then the other one, then the other one, then the other one. So over Zoom, we can actually do that. And we shipped microphones and a, an interface to the singers and to the uh, the musicians and got them to plug up and they're recording themselves in their houses. In terms of doing that over Zoom, that's fine, actually. There's enough time because we're all so used to talking to people on video calls I'm sure the first people who used the telephone found it really, really weird. But we don't now, you know, we just talk to somebody on the phone and it's the same with singing over Zoom. Because they're not singing to a beat, it doesn't really matter if their beat isn't the same. Um, if they were, what we what we were doing yesterday is that we sent everybody a click track and everybody had that click track on their on their computer, on their iTunes or something, and they all hit play at the same time might be slightly out but at least they'll all be playing to the same beat so when I get the recordings I should be able to sync it up and then with the duet what we're what we're planning on doing we haven't recorded it yet um is getting one of the singers to record theirs because it's free time as well it's going to be really really hard for the second singer to sing in time without being in the same room without having that eye contact so what the first singer is going to sing her line and then send it to the second singer and that second singer who is an absolute legend, is just going to learn the feel of it in her bones and then record her line over the top of it. You know, I couldn't ask for better musicians on this. Like, they are really taking it in their strides. They're really having a go. They're getting in there. That you know, they're singing vocal patterns and learning things that change key every two notes and pitching stuff. They've got absolutely no... There's no harmonic structure for them to follow. There's no piano. There's no chords. It's like, here's a G, go. And they're doing it. I mean, it's incredible. And they're doing it over Zoom and they're home recording themselves at exactly you know, at the same time. 
It seems to me in some ways, this is the sound of of that flexibility, that negotiation amongst people um, that you were talking about earlier, that, that there's actually, in the end, the, the, the piece is going to sound different as a result of all that. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. What I'm really trying not to do is to, to kind of be too prescriptive. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think just because of the way we're working, it would be ridiculous if we said, right, we want this to sound like a studio produced album. And I think because we've all been in the pandemic, in a way that's easier for us again, because people have got used to the homemade aesthetic. People are really used to people, you know, filming TikToks in their bedroom or recording podcasts from their basement. And and so I sort of feel like it's OK to leave that aesthetic in the recordings. We don't have to try and live up to, in inverted commas, normal quality levels, because everybody knows what home-based recording and home-based mixing and home-based and Zoom rehearsing is like, it sort of has allowed us to inhabit that space without being told, oh, but it's just not very good. It's like you're not measuring it against something which would have been normal before. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's kind of given us the freedom to be able to say, yeah, this is what it sounds like when you all work from home and actually that's interesting and it's fine. And it's not a case of it being lower quality than a studio recorded album. It's just a different aesthetic. And it's made out of truth and it's made out of our realities. So your, your, your practice as a composer is pre- predominantly electronic. Is, is there a role uh, for instrument building in the work that you do? And if so, how? I don't know, really. I mean, I think a few years ago, I was kind of like, I can do a bit of Max, I could make instruments, I could work with disabled people. And I think actually, I'm not, that's not me. It's not what I'm good at. But having said that, I think absolutely. So for the opera, I've made this sampler for Clarence um, Addy, who's an amazing musician. Um, He was a trumpet player um, and he had a very serious accident and is now paraplegic and plays his instruments um, through a head mouse. So it's basically a tube that you put in your mouth and you blow and the different pressure and the clicks of the that you can make on the mouse with your tongue um, controls the mouse on your computer. And so he's had he's had an instrument built for him and I think it was built using Max MSP. And so I have used my limited knowledge of Max MSP to build him um, a little sampler trigger. So basically in some of the chorus sections, the samples are going to be triggered live by Clarence um, in an improvised way. So each sampler has 28 samples loaded into it and he knows what they are and he can choose which samples are played in which order and how often at what sort of volume. So he's sort of live soundscaping. I think there's always this problem with instrument making when it you know when we end up talking about who's making what for who I think that's a really key question and and the dynamic we have very much at the moment with disabled uh, instrument making is that it's non-disabled instrument makers making things for disabled people without necessarily asking the disabled people what they want or what works best for them um, and it's all kind of done with great fanfare and announcement that we've made this amazing thing that disabled people can use. And even just saying this could be used for disabled people is such a broad kind of range. It's like, well, which disabled person? 
like because right. me and Clarence are very different musicians. We're very different performers. We're very different physically. Um, we have very different ideas about what we want to do musically. And so just saying, well, this is for disabled people is kind of like, oh, we made the buttons big, so job done. Um, so there's always this kind of awkwardness around people be, things being made for disabled people um, because it's such a ridiculously wide term. And I, I, I sort of feel like, wouldn't it be amazing if disabled people could make their own instruments, actually? And if they're not, why is that? Is it that the kind of training you need in order to be able to make instruments using Max MSP or any other kind of coding is not available to disabled people or is... Is it that disabled people want to be musicians and not makers? And are there people who want to be coders in the disabled community who could help make these instruments? Or is it just such a niche thing that we haven't come across anybody who does it yet? One of the problems that we have with making instruments is sustainability and sustainability for the performer. Because it's one thing to have an instrument made for you using Max 5, five years ago. But what happens now that we're using Max 8 and suddenly your instrument stops working and you can't upgrade to Max 8 or you can't upgrade your your operating system because suddenly your instrument's going to stop working. You know, there's we we sort of find excitement and funding in like, oh, wow, we made this amazing thing for a disabled person. and But we don't put lots of sort of support and funding into making sure that that instrument continues to develop and making sure that that instrument continues to be fit for purpose. And then you have a situation where a musician is, is doing paid gigs and their instrument breaks, but actually there isn't anybody who can fix it. There isn't, or the person who could fix it is currently busy doing something else. And the skills aren't built into our community so that somebody can then just go and build their own instrument or or even be aware of what possibilities of, are available for their instrument and, and kind of um, co-build things. I know John Kelly did a really interesting thing with John, with uh, Charles Matthews and with the Kelly caster. Um, and I think there's there's that sort of level of of integration and collaboration is really important because I, I did some research um, last year where I interviewed disabled people about um, electronic instruments or disabled musicians specifically about electronic instruments and, and two of the things that came through were completely contradictory and one is that we want to be able to get results quickly because actually we don't have much time and we don't have much energy and we if it's going to take me more than a couple of days to get it working, I just, I'm not going to have the energy all the time to do that. And then the other thing was that actually once we get proficient on our instrument, we want it to be progressive. We want it to get harder and harder. We want to be able to do new things with it. We want to be able to build our skills. We want to be able to express more complex elements of musicianship through it. And a lot of stuff is built, like you press the button and the cow goes moo and, and it's great for like... A week but then then what um and so there's this sort of idea of building simplicity and complexity into an instrument at the same time and lastly could you share the access information to the opera where could people find listen and watch it okay so the opera is being performed as part of Sound Festival, which is a new music festival in Scotland. It's usually in Aberdeen in October, the end of October. But because of the pandemic, they're having 
two sound festivals this year and we're in the second one so we are on the 29th of january and it will be online uh, if you go to the sound festival website um, which is sound s-o-u-n-d hyphen scotland s-c-o-t-l-a-n-d dot co dot uk um, and we are on on the 29th of january and it will be online so that's where you will find us the the opera is called we ask these questions of everybody <laughs> that's a great title and and, and uh, can anyone listen yeah of course um, if you want to find out more about the opera you can go to the wearehearer.co.uk it was episode 15 opera in the time of the pandemic we want to thank Amble for accepting our invitation and calling for hosting this episode Marshall Bureau is the composer of all tracks for quantization except the piece we heard from Amble we appreciate the continuous support of the Inclusive Design Research Center at OCAD University. For more episodes and full transcripts, please check out our website, quantization.ca, and come back for upcoming episodes. Podcast.